0: Please turn with me to Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9. Isaiah, chapter 9. This time of year, we typically do a few sermons or possibly a short series that help us think about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the past couple of years that I've been with you, we've done a few studies on what we've called the songs of the Nativity. Songs like the Song of Simeon or uh, the Nunc Dimittis or the Song of the Angels, the Gloria in Excelsis Deo or Mary's Magnificat. But this year I wanted to study one of the great prophecies of the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 9 because one of the most common emotions associated with this season is longing, longing. We are longing for peace. We are longing for comfort. We are longing for resolution to conflicts and tensions and pain. We are longing for a Savior. And actually, the ancient church, for what it's worth, during this time taught just as much on Christ's second coming as they did his first. They remember Jesus' first coming into the world at the Nativity, yes, but they longed for his second coming when he returns in power and judgment to vanquish all evil to right every wrong and to wipe away every tear. This year has been hard. It's been hard for a host of reasons. The economy, certainly. Uh, The pending political season with all of its frustrations and upheavals. We've had some former church members die and go home to the Lord. We've had close loved ones of church members pass away. We've had some folks with various troubling diagnoses, Not a few people dealing with isolation, loneliness, worry, fallouts, and consequences of sin. It's been a hard year in many instances. And so, what we need, more than anything else, more than another hot take, more than another talking head, more than another dear Abbey column of vapid advice, what we need is to cast our eyes yet again to the Savior and to his promises, to his glory to his power, and to his splendor. We need to take to heart the exhortation of Hebrews 12, don't we? Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's my thesis this morning, that in a world and season full of cynicism and full of discouragement, we need to lock our gaze on the one who is eminently worthy of our trust and our worship. So let's do that very thing. Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses 2 through 7. Actually, I think we'll go ahead and read verse 1 as well. Verses 1 through 7. And, and one of the things you'll notice as we read through this passage is that it is chock full of truth and comfort and promises and doctrine. It's the kind of passage that I'm not sure we can adequately address in, sim- in one half-hour sermon It's one of those times where you you, you pick up a passage weeks in advance and then you open up and realize there's so much going on here that we can't do it justice in just one week. So I think that's what we'll do is we'll return to this passage again in the future. But there's four titles that Isaiah uses in verse 6 to describe the coming Messiah. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And we'll return to this passage again going through each of those descriptors. But for today we're thinking about Christ Jesus, our wonderful counselor. So let's read the passage and then let's pray and ask for the Lord's help and blessing as we study his word. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 1 and reading through verse 7. This is God's holy word. Hear it. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, To establish it and to uphold it with justice, with right and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inspired and inerrant word to us this day. May He write its eternal truth on all our hearts. Would you pray with me again, friends? Oh, Lord, we pray that you would grant us the ministry of the Holy Spirit to illumine. These words on the printed page as we read, as we have just read them, as we read them again, as we study them, that you would give us insight and understanding. And then that you would seal these truths to our hearts forever. For the glory of you, our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. If you all are classical music lovers, every time we read through that passage, you can already hear the stunning movement from Handel's Messiah every time you read those words. Wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Wonderful counselor is what we're thinking about, particularly this morning. Wonderful is one of those words that has become a little bit cheapened and a little bit of a throwaway word in our day, hasn't it? Oh, how was the restaurant? Oh, it was wonderful. Oh, how was your vacation with the relatives? Oh, it was wonderful. And frankly, depending on your relatives, that may be in question. Wonderful is a word that gets thrown around a lot at this time of year. It's a wonderful life will be on TV for the billionth time. You will probably hear, it's the most wonderful time of the year on the radio, an average of 37 times this week. Yes, that's a true statistic. I looked it up. Wonder. Wonderful. And then, of course, the, the next noun, counselor. Wonderful counselor. And I don't know about you, but counselor is not typically a word that I associate with Christmas. And when I think of counselor, at least in my head, I initially think of camp counselor, probably because I was one for a couple of years. That was my summer job in college for a few seasons. And so I think of tug of war and jet skis and campfires and lots of yelling. But a number of years ago, I was speaking with a a church member about this passage, about Isaiah 9, and about the descriptors used about the Messiah. And we were thinking about Jesus as the wonderful counselor and the notion of counselor and the incarnation and how I don't naturally make the connection. And this church member said, oh, well counselor is who you go to see once the holidays are finally over. After you've racked up your credit card debt and the relatives and the in-laws have finally gone home and your emotions are spent and you've been irritated beyond belief, the counselor helps you recover from Christmas. I appreciated the connection she was trying to make, but I don't think that's quite what the prophet Isaiah had in mind. What can we make of this first title given to the coming Messiah, given to the Christ child in Isaiah 9-6, wonderful counselor? Well, let's start first for, by thinking about the historical context for a few moments. Isaiah chapter 9, no surprise, follows Isaiah chapter 8, and back in Isaiah chapter 8, the prophet was making some pretty dark predictions regarding the future of the people of God. If you have a Bible open, you can take a look there. Just let your eyes glance at some of those closing verses of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 22, see what he says. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. It's a very grim picture. Judgment and darkness is coming on account of the sins of the people of Israel. But then chapter 9 opens. And what a contrast as you step into chapter 9 having come out of chapter 8. Chapter 9, verse 2. Darkness has been replaced with light. The people who walked in darkness, verse 2, have seen a great light. Verse 3. Instead of sorrow, Isaiah says there will be joy. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy after the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He's saying there's a day coming when instead of being another cycle of defeat after a war, when the population is decimated, actually quite the opposite of the population being decimated, the Lord is going to multiply the nation. He's he's going to grow it. He's going to increase it. He's going to increase the population of those who dwell in this land that is ruled by the coming Messiah. The population will grow. They are going to have joy that's like the joy of a people at the end of harvest season. When when there's an abundance of food and feasting to go around, it's a time of great celebration. That's what it will be like when this counselor comes. It will be like when an army has conquered a wicked enemy and they divide the spoil from the battle. And they they spread around the riches for everyone to enjoy. It's that kind of joy and that kind of celebration that will be happening when this Messiah comes around. Great exchanges, light instead of darkness, joy instead of sorrow. There in verses 4 and 5, back in chapter 8 it said oppression was coming, but then chapter 9 tells us that freedom shall replace it. See there? The rod of his oppressor, midway through verse 4 the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian, for the yoke of his burden and a staff for his shoulder. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This yoke that used to weigh you down, God says to his people, it's going to be your walking stick. This oppression that used to weigh heavily upon you and cause you torment and misery is going to be a staff to aid you as you stroll along the way, the smooth way, the righteous way, the way of liberty and blessing in me. And those bloody boots, those garments of your enemies, you can use them for kindling, for your campfires to keep you warm because there's no need for them anymore. The strife and the warfare have ended. War is over. Peace is coming. There's new hope. A time for joy is coming, Isaiah says. The dawning of new light, the dawning of a new day. And, irony of ironies, it's a message of hope and peace and strength, all these things. But it's a message entirely focused on the birth of a child, a baby. Verse 6, for to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders. Now, the New Testament makes it very clear that these verses are fulfilled in the coming of our Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, quote these verses as being fulfilled with the birth of Mary's boy, the Lord Jesus. He is the child, he is the child, whose birth is the cause, the occasion, for those who were in darkness to see the great light for those in sorrow to now be full of joy. But then, of course, the natural question becomes, what is it about this child that makes all the difference, that makes him this this great turning point for redemptive history, for human history, that makes him the great turning point for all who trust in him? Well, those four names, those four descriptors given there in verse 6 helps us to answer that. Some of you may know this, but in ancient Near Eastern culture in the ancient world, when a new king ascended to the throne, he would often take additional names, sometimes titles, but often additional personal names by which you could refer to him. And the reason for adopting those names is because they became clear signals of what he intended his reign to accomplish. They gave the people a signal or a sense of his agenda, the things that he hoped to accomplish during his reign. So, for example, if we had a king today named Bill and he took the name Alexander when he came up to the throne, that's probably a reference to Alexander the Great, the father of the great Greek empire. And when he takes that name, what he's doing is he's sending a signal that he probably intends to expand territory and to build a kingdom and further an empire. Modern day kings will do this as well. They have their birth name, but then when they become the monarch, they take on a regnal name. Taking a certain name sends a signal. The priorities of those who bore this name in the past, these will be my priorities as well. Well, that's somewhat analogous to how these names function here in verse 6. They tell us what Jesus has come to do. This king is born, or he will be born. What will that reign signify? What will that reign accomplish? What will be his holy agenda? Jesus, the Messiah, Isaiah says, has come to be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. So that's the first thing we need to think about today. As we think about wonderful counselors, think first about wonderful. Wonderful. We're told that Christ is wonderful. And and in some ways, it's, it's a bit of an unfortunate translation, not because there's anything wrong with scripture, but because there's everything wrong with us. We typically use the word wonderful very emotionally, very subjectively, but that's the way that all the major English translations render this verse, wonderful counselor. Uh, There were two that I found that put it a little differently. One said messenger of great counsel, and one said extraordinary strategist, which is just dreadful. But the problem isn't with the Hebrew, the problem isn't with God's word, but with the way we tend to use wonder today. New cars are wonderful. Sales and food are wonderful. I feel wonderful. You look wonderful. And so we read verse 6. We typically in our heads tend to understand this verse as something along the lines of Jesus is the kind of counselor that we're going to really, really like. He's wonderful. While that can be true, the Old Testament means a little bit more than that. In the Old Testament, the word means something more like Miraculous, supernatural. For example, Psalm 78, verse 12. We read In the sight of Israel's fathers, God performed wonders, mighty works in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zone. He divided the sea and let them pass through and let the waters stand up like a heap. It's the Exodus. God's mighty miracle is called a wonder. And that is the typical understanding of the Old Testament usage of this word, wonderful. And there's other examples that we could list, but we won't just for the sake of time. But when we understand the word with a bit more of a precise definition, wonderful really encapsulates quite well what we know is true of Jesus. Jesus was and is a real man, born of the Virgin Mary, but he was also and is truly and fully god the god man he merely spoke right with the with the same casual utterance with which you or i order a cup of coffee at a restaurant he merely speaks and a raging storm ceases he speaks and the lifelong blind man suddenly sees he speaks He breathes just a word, Lazarus, come out, and the dead were raised to life. Death has no choice but to unclasp its cold grasp and yield over its hostage when the Lord of life breathes out but a word. One pastor pointed me in the direction of commentator E.J. Young. Dr. Young puts it quite well. He says this, the Old Testament usage of the word compels us to the conclusion that it here, wonderful counselor, designates the Messiah not merely as someone extraordinary, though he is extraordinary, but as one who in his very person and being is a wonder. He is that which surpasses human thought and power. He is God himself. Close quote. This Jesus is wonderful, not simply because he is inspiring, not simply because he evokes in us a sense of wonder, though he should, but he is himself the great wonder himself. He is exalted, sovereign. He is God over all. He is the infinite, eternal, and unchangeable one. This baby, this child born is God become man. This is what wonder means. What else could possibly be such good news and what else could possibly change the history of the people described in Isaiah chapter eight? Chapter eight says that God's people were in darkness, they were in anguish, they were in bondage. As we turn the page to chapter nine, now here light has dawned upon them, light has burst upon them, given them fullness of joy and set them free from their bondage and free from their punishment. And as we will learn later on, set them free from their bondage, not just against military oppression, but free from their bondage and sin. The one who is the great I am. The one who said, let there be light, and light was. The one who was with God, and the one who was God, the one who was in the beginning and through whom all things that are made have been made, John 1. That is he. This is he. This is the child of whom Isaiah speaks. This is the child whom Isaiah predicts. This child, namely Jesus, he is the only one who can scatter darkness with his marvelous light. He is the only one who can transfer us from the kingdom, the the domain of death and sin and darkness into his kingdom of light and life. Only he can come to us in our slavery and set us free. Only he will cease every sorrow and only he will wipe away every tear. Light and life to all he brings. This is our Jesus. This is the child of Isaiah 9. Christ the Messiah is wonderful. Wonderful, that's the first thing. But then let's look at the other word here in this first title, this first descriptor that we're studying. He is the wonderful counselor. We are presented here with a king reigning and ruling from his throne. This is not the great cosmic counselor or therapist, no. This is the omnipotent, sovereign, cosmic potentate enthroned on high and reigning over all. And that's the point. And please don't misunderstand me. This is not at all to denigrate counselors or to say that counselors don't play an important role in the lives of Christians. Of course we believe that. Our session has had a long relationship with a Christian counseling ministry to whom we will make referrals, with whom we have worked closely. We appreciate their work. There's all kinds of places for that. No, that actually helps reinforce the point. The thing is you and I need counselors from time to time. Little C fits a broad category. Whether it's a trained professional therapist, whether it's a trained biblical counselor, whether it's a pastor or an elder, whether it's a godly, wise Christian friend giving you advice, we need counsel. You and I, our wisdom, fallible as it is, we need that. We need wisdom, counsel, insight. Kings need that. Solomon, of course, his name is associated with wisdom. But as one commentator points out, when Isaiah is giving this prophecy, there's a different king on the throne at this point, not King Solomon who sought wisdom in many counselors, but rather there's a different king named Ahaz. And Ahaz was ultimately a bungling fool. And with that context, that's what Isaiah wanted his original audience to see and for us to see as well. Earthly rulers are sometimes wise, and sometimes they are absolute fools. Sometimes they are insightful and measured and they do much good for their people, and sometimes they are corrupt and compromised by their their own greed and lust for power. But Isaiah is saying, this child is unlike any of them. This Messiah, this king is coming who needs no advice, he needs no input. He needs no counselors. His rule is always holy and right. He always does well. Rather than the one who needs safety in a multitude of counselors, he is the one who dispenses wisdom. And in his rule, there is absolutely no potential for corruption or compromise. You know, it's funny. I was reading a commentary and the commentator was offering some applications and insights on this passage, and he wrote his words probably 10, maybe 15 years ago. He said, now we live in a time when many people find it hard to trust our elected officials and our leaders. Cynicism abounds. Uncertainty about the future is commonplace. Corruption is real, bias is normal, and money, more often than not, carries more influence than high ideals. Close quote. And boy, isn't that true. People are cynical. They're skeptical. The institutions that we once trusted, even a generation ago, that we regarded as virtuous, people don't share those sentiments anymore. I don't know about you, but I'm very prone to cynicism personally. And Isaiah is reminding us that yes, yes, you may be cynical. But your hope should never have ultimately been in such figures in the first place. Isn't that what we sing all the time? And we sing that wonderful psalm, Psalm 146 Put no confidence in princes, nor for help on man depend. He shall die to dust returning, and his purposes shall end. In just a few chapters, Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah is going to tell us that this Messiah, the servant of the Lord, is coming. With the spirit of wisdom and understanding he's going to come with the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, so that unlike every other earthly ruler, he shall not judge by pressures or political calculations he shall not judge by economic impact or the path of least resistance he shall not judge by deceitful information no Isaiah says. With righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. You say, finally, 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 here's a king. Here's a leader. Here's a figure you can trust. And he will always do right. He will always govern with purity and integrity. He will always do that which is holy. And he will always, always do all things well. And it is true that he's a wonderful counselor because, as we said in the first half of the sermon, he is a great wonder, the God-man, God and man in hypostatic union forever and ever. He is truly and fully God, but he's also the wonderful counselor because he's truly and fully man. Christ Jesus was born into this world to live a life fully man. He grew up Luke 2:52 tells us he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. He's been touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Hebrews 4:15 we read earlier, he is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. That is to say Christ Jesus knows you. Yes, even you. Even me. And not simply because he is the all-knowing, all-powerful deity who rules over all, who is sovereign and omniscient, he is that but he knows because he has been one with you in your humanity. He has, in a manner of speaking, walked in your shoes. Incidentally, whether it's right or wrong, it is very interesting. That's the number one reason why people tend to vote the way they do these days, according to the statisticians at least. Not just in national elections, but at all levels. More than party affiliation, more than their positions on certain issues, if given two identical candidates, Why pick one over the other? People will tend to say, he's been through what I've been through. It seems like he can relate to a guy like me. Well, how much more consequential is it that Jesus knows precisely where you are coming from? Jesus knows what it is to endure injustice, to be wronged. He knows the joys of friendships, the demands of family the frustration of loved ones who don't get it. Here's the Messiah ministering right before their very eyes and his own family wants to haul him back inside as a man out of his mind. I don't know if your family has ever quite accused you of that. The pain of being lied about and the pain of betrayal. He knows you omnisciently, but he also knows you because he knows exactly what the human experience is like. He has been plunged into the depths of human sorrow and more than you or I will ever experience. He has known total dereliction and even even the perception or the sensation of God's abandonment. He takes David's words recall Psalm 22, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" And he makes them his own as he hangs there on Calvary's cross. Bearing the guilt of sin, not his sin, bearing yours and mine. He has known cosmic wrath and condemnation. And because of him, you never need to, Christian, and you never shall. And because of what he endured at the cross, and because of his death, and because of his resurrection, as one man put it, every plague of the human heart finds in Jesus a wonderful counselor who hears with understanding when no one else understands, who loves without reserve, when everyone else holds back, who gives grace to pardon and to cleanse and to comfort and uphold you when every other resource runs dry. Close quote. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is truly a wonderful counselor. He is a sufficient savior. He's all that you need. My friends, my hope for all of us during the season is that we might stop looking to bankrupt resources, bankrupt leaders, bankrupt methods, and bankrupt worldly wisdom, that we here in the church might be able to rise above the world's cynicism, certainly to rise above the materialism of the season, because we know because we want the whole world to know the only true source of hope and joy and liberty that is entirely reliable and thoroughly life-giving. Friends, this season, let's look again, fixing our eyes on Jesus, Isaiah's wonderful counselor. He's worthy of all your trust and all your worship. Cling to him evermore, beloved. Come, let us adore him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for the wonderful Counselor, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, the God-man, he who knows our frame and who is familiar with our sorrows and acquainted with all our griefs. Forgive us for ever looking to any bankrupt source of worldly hope or putting any confidence in the princes of man, but Lord, help us again this season and this coming year to look afresh to Christ, our anchor of hope in heaven the anchor of souls, we do long for his coming again. And may it be true of all of us here that he is our all in all. Amen.